step forward. You have been brought here for a purpose, the most important task of your lives. Cooperate. Do not make me destroy you. Greetings, my friend. When you mention the movies you hold near and dear, do other people run away from you really fast? Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. We invite you to our cinematic science lab in the Mountains of Madness. A rest stop for those who like their films with double extra cheese. The Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. What kind of place is this? It's a safe haven from summer blockbusters. A refuge from the reboots, remakes, and regurgitations of Hollywood. But be careful, once you've stepped into this dimension of demented directors, you may not want to step back out. Don't try to escape, you can't. There is no way out of here, because all you of Earth are idiots. And now, your guide to this episode's journey through the junkyard of Hollywood, Professor Stanton Gearhart. Howdy, folks, and welcome back to Southwestern Pennsylvania's uh, Answer to the Mountains of Madness. I am your partially mechanized Master of Ceremonies, Professor Stanton Gearhart, and I bid you welcome to episode number five of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, the podcast where you can take shelter from the multi-million dollar mediocrities of modern Hollywood and explore the bizarre, the obscure, and downright cheesy films of past and present. The movies that entertain in ways their creators never intended. And for this episode of the podcast, we're going to leave Hollywood far behind and bask in the sun and studio lights of Italy. Unfortunately, the cost of my passage was having to sit through this movie. (sighs) This movie literally put me to sleep. That pretty much says it all. I forced myself to re-watch the film for the purposes of this podcast because it's been a few years since I'd last seen it and I think my brain was actively trying to repress the memory. It took me forever to find my copy of this film in the vault. Again, I'd probably hidden it for a reason, and when I rewatched it, it ended up putting me to sleep again. It doesn't really have a proper trailer. The ones that are shown on YouTube are just basically the first five minutes of the film, so instead I'm going to treat you to part of the original English language theme song for this movie, which is 1977's War of the Planets, directed by Alfonso Breccia. And for some odd reason, this theme song, even though it was recorded in English, uh, was cut from the American release. So um, you're not, if you watch this movie on an American-made DVD, you're not going to actually hear it. So this, you know, I got this off of YouTube and... Actually, there might be a very good reason why um, it was omitted from the American release, but in any case, uh, we'll go ahead and give it a listen here. We had no Shook his faces. We are not 
Okay, I'll spare you the rest of that. Actually, I hope you enjoyed that, because that's probably the most original thing about this entire movie. Um, <laughs> oh, it's bad. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, uh, and, well, actually, every time I listen to that uh, theme music, I actually want to listen to a Tom Waits cover of it. For some reason, I think it would fit in well with his... Um, Junkyard period, um, swordfish, trombones, rain dogs. We sail tonight for Singapore. Don't fall asleep while you're ashore. Cross your heart and hope to die when you hear the children cry. If you're a Tom Waits fan, you may be nodding in agreement with me. If not, then my apologies for going off the beaten path here. Anyway, let's go ahead. I'll stop waffling and get into the plot summary for War of the Planets. The main plot, as there are numerous false starts that we'll not get into here, goes something like this. The Earth Space Agency, Orion, which is run by humans that do the bidding of a computer called The Wiz, which I'm guessing is supposed to be a rip-off of the HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey, sends a spaceship called the MK-31 to investigate the source of a radio signal that is pummeling the Earth. What disposition is Wiz given? Wiz affirms that behind this strange signal there's an alien intelligence that knows all, and there's danger. Wiz orders us to find the emission source and destroy it. Good. Send an airship at once. And um, the only reason that I can't call this a ripoff of what happened in Star Trek IV is because Star Trek IV happened, well, was um, made many years later. But that part of it is very similar. This uh, radio signal's wreaking all kind of havoc. Anyway command of the MK-31, uh, or the MK-31, that is, is commanded by uh, the rebellious and headstrong Captain Hamilton, because in a 1970s science fiction film, what other kind of spaceship captain was there, apart from rebellious and headstrong? You're a barbarian, a savage. They warned me when they transferred you under my orders, but the warning wasn't necessary. Your arrogance was well known in advance. We knew all about it. Hamilton doesn't like the idea of having to take his crew out to investigate this signal because his crew were just coming back from a tough mission already. At least I think that's the case. The storytelling in this film is horrendous as far as linear time goes. But he finally agrees to turn his ship around and check it out. Now, the ship itself is a step below Ed Wood level. It looks like a collection of beer cans and styrofoam cups hastily glued together and painted white. On its way to investigate the signal, the ship is attacked by a couple of flying saucers that actually would have done Ed Wood proud, and it's thrown off course. Captain, try to find out what's happening, but remember they're not terrestrial spaceships. That is, if they are spaceships. In the meantime, Earth is in a panic, and the cynical press isn't making matters any better. Every time the Orion Agency tells them things are under control, they phone in their headlines that the Earth is doomed. The Earth is in danger! The Earth is in desperate, desperate danger! Aliens are attacking Earth! Vanguard of a fleet! Our bases prepare defenses! Our bases can be destroyed like 
So in the future, the press is just as useless as it is now. Nice to know that the news media never changes. Anyway, back in space, the MK-31 is still spinning out of control, and it was at this point during both of my viewings of this film that I fell asleep. But then it's mysteriously drawn toward the nearest alien planet. The ship lands on the planet, or to be more precise, there's a styrofoam cup that detaches from the main beer can in a just absolutely horrible stop-motion sequence, and then the cup lands on the planet like an Apollo lunar lander. The crew find, conveniently enough, atmospheric and gravitational conditions similar to the Earth, and start their investigation. And a crewman whose name I forget, basically this film's version of a red shirt, wanders off and runs into some sort of portal that teleports him into a really freaky-looking cave guarded by a robot that, well, it promptly kills him, but let's just say that the poor schlub who played this crewman who gets killed does the best acting job in the whole movie. because it would have to be very, very difficult to act afraid of this robot. It had red eyes, and it looks like a cross between, oh, a medieval suit of armor and one of those tin can-type robots from a 1930s sci-fi serial. Just ridiculous. The rest of the crew looks for their missing comrade, only to be beamed to the same cave where instead of the robot, they run into a bunch of aliens that have oversized ears and silver spray-painted bodies. And the aliens deliver some valuable exposition. They tell the humans that they were once a proud race until a monstrous machine subjugated them. Many of us have died. The Black Peril kills all those who dare to go out of the caves. We cannot do a thing against him. We can only hide in the innermost recesses of the planet. Captain Hamilton and one of his interchangeable crewmen go to find this machine, which looks even more ridiculous than the first robot that we encountered. Um, I mean, it's really cheap sci-fi, lights for no apparent reason at its worst. And this machine, which is obviously sentient, addresses them in bombastic and condescending tones, telling them the story that um, of how it gained control of the planet and why it summoned them here. You see, the, the natives of the planet, the, uh, the silver-painted aliens, they built machines to do all the work for them and then set up the master machine to maintain and build all of the other machines. When the aliens, when other aliens, that is, attacked the planet, the natives were weakened to the point that the master machine, who had achieved sentience, was able to take over. The machine was also damaged in the war, but nobody on the planet was able to fix him, so he sent for the humans to repair his circuits so he could conquer the galaxy. Because, really, what else would a sentient machine from the 1970s want to do but conquer the galaxy? I control the lives and the brains of all the inhabitants here. I keep them alive as I see fit, just as a shepherd controls the sheep 
and then at any moment shears the sheep. Enough now with explanations. I will indicate to you which burned out circuits must be replaced. They fix him, but on their way out, the captain pulls a David and Goliath with a slingshot and takes down the machine, hitting it at just the right spot. It blows up and begins to take down the whole planet with it. The crew blasts off just in time, bringing along one of the aliens, and all seems peachy keen for the return trip. But then one of the crewmen ends up under the control of the alien consciousness of the master control machine they blew up, or something like that, and he starts wreaking havoc. The alien that uh, rode along with them tries to fight it, but he gets the crap kicked out of him too. And then, in a move that finally shows that the movie is even getting tired of itself, the captain seals off the problem and blows an airlock, sending the crewman and the alien into space. Now, the movie finally seems to be over when the captain asks the ship's computer if they are on course for Earth. And the computer answers in the voice of the monster machine. Direction, cost exact. Estimated time of touchdown, 30 hours, Earthlings. And suddenly the captain has a flashback of the red-eyed robot. Which makes no sense because he'd never seen that particular robot. That was the crewman that was killed that saw that robot. In any case, I let out a bit of a groan because I thought this was going to pointlessly extend an already pointlessly extended story. But thankfully, this really was the end of the movie. But did the monster machine take over the ship or was the captain just tripping? You know what? I don't know. I don't care. The movie was over. That's all that mattered to me. So, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what little we know on the history of this film and call our class into session. War of the Planets is our first foray into the world of international low-budget filmmaking, and I have realized too late that we have definitely started off on the wrong foot. The insane asylum known as the Italian film industry of the 1970s and early 80s was legendary for cranking out film after film in imitation of whatever the hottest film properties were at the time, whether it be westerns, although most of the spaghetti westerns I've seen have been quite good, uh, zombie films, cannibal films, porno, or in this case sci-fi. And, as is the case with a number of Italian films, the name that this uh, film was released under depended upon the country it was released in. Therefore, the film also goes by the titles Cosmos War of the Planets, which actually is the primary American release. That's you know what, what it came out in, in theaters here in the States under. Cosmo 2000, Planet Without a Name, 
Year Zero, War in Space, and a few others. I know I'm leaving a few off the list here, but uh, actually that's one of the shorter lists uh, for Italian productions. There are a lot of other ones that had a list of names even longer. As far as the history of the film's production goes, I honestly was not able to find a whole lot of information. And probably for good reason. Who'd really want to admit to being part of this? What we do know is that uh, director Alfonso Brescia, credited in English as Al Bradley, and that's actually a, a convention that a lot of Italian filmmakers followed, that they would adopt an English pseudonym for the film released in English-language countries. Um, other ones who did this was like Luigi Cozzi used the name Louis Coates. Um, and I'm drawing a blank. I can't think of any any others offhand. But it, it was a com common practice, basically, for people in the Italian film industry to also have an Americanized or Anglicized name as well that they would use in their credits. In any way, in any case, Alfonso Breccia, Al Bradley, whatever you want to call him, made this film and two others called War of the Robots and Star Odyssey in the period from 1977 to 1978, utilizing more or less the same sets, costumes, and core cast. And this was all for one purpose, to cash in on the Star Wars craze. Because when Star Wars hit cinemas in 1977, suddenly science fiction was relevant again, and the Italians were definitely going to try to get their piece of that sweet cash pie. The role of Captain Hamilton was played by John Richardson, who was once actually a rising star at Hammer Films in Britain, and was, believe it or not, under serious consideration at one point to play James Bond. I'm not sure which Bond he would have been replacing, but uh, he was apparently in the running. The fact that he ended up in this instead doesn't exactly count in his favor. The Wikipedia article on this movie asserts that this film is considered to be a remake of the highly influential 1963 sci-fi classic Planet of the Vampires, directed by Mario Bava. But I've seen that film. Uh, the vampires mentioned are more energy vampires than blood vampires, but in any case, I've seen that movie and I can't bring myself to believe what Wikipedia is saying because the plots don't even bear a passing resemblance to one another except for the fact that they both land on alien planets, they both encounter alien intelligences, and people die in both. That's about the only resemblance that I can see between those two films. And War of the Planets is clearly the inferior one. And speaking of inferiority, let's go ahead and analyze this sucker. There's no two ways about it. War of the Planets hurts. It is a bad, 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 bad movie. In that it has taken a little over three hours away from my life over the course of two viewings and has given me absolutely nothing in return. It is so mind-numbingly dull that I'd recommend anybody wishing to attempt viewing it to consume copious amounts of caffeine and sugar beforehand. Since I'm trying to avoid both of those things for the sake of my partially mechanized heart, I was doomed from the beginning to take the nap that I took in fil film both times. I think the worst thing about this film is that everything, everything, stunk. The acting is non-existent. To call it unremarkable would be paying it a compliment. 
John Richardson might have been a competent actor, but there's just nothing for him to work with here. The script is needlessly padded out to 99 minutes, when really there's only enough story here for about maybe a 45-minute screenplay, you know, maybe an hour-long TV episode um, of some sort. There's actually a plot and a message here, a, a warning about humanity's increasing reliance upon machines, and this plot would have been serviceable had it been in more competent hands, but here it's just buried by mountains of unentertaining ineptitude that most audiences, even the seasoned veterans of crap cinema like myself and other bad movie reviewers and podcasters, um, just don't have the patience to dig through. The special effects are also practically non-existent. You can actually see the shadow of the harness holding up one of the crewmen in an early spacewalking scene in a painfully obvious way. And let's not forget about the crappy spaceship model and the idiotic robots that I described. I'd have rather seen the crew getting attacked by Roman from Robot Monster. As ridiculous as he looked, at least he brought some entertainment value to the party. The dubbing in this film made my head hurt, too. If this were a Japanese movie, I'd excuse it, because in the giant monster genre, bad dubbing accounts for about 25% of the entertainment value to begin with. But, come on, how do you screw up the dubbing on an Italian film? Spaghetti Westerns and their linguistically diverse casts pulled it off all the time. You look at a Clint Eastwood movie and you don't really notice the dubbing, or if you notice it, it doesn't get in the way, but in this film, it does. The film's score, um, save for the opening sequence that you uh, heard in place of a trailer for this one, or opening song, not sequence, it's little more than some classical music being tortured to death on a synthesizer and some forbidden planet-type space sounds. I feel as if I've insulted a true sci-fi classic by making that comparison. And there are all kinds of other stupid little elements that make no sense whatsoever in this movie. In several scenes, including the opening, the crew seatbelt themselves into ordinary office chairs that aren't even attached to the floor. Why? And, and, and they're all dressed in white spandex and swim caps. Why? After a while, I just wanted it to stop because I, you know, I kept asking the question, why, for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I typically love incompetently made films, otherwise this podcast wouldn't exist. But there was just no earnestness to this one. There's no striving for quality or you know, no, no trying to make a real statement about something and failing that makes so many bad movies so much fun to watch, you know. They might be failures, but they fail in such a spectacular manner that you can't help but be entertained. This movie, on the other hand, was simply a set of motions for the cast, crew, and so on to go through. And that's just sad. So, where can you see this movie, and where can you buy it? I wish I could... I wish I could have had a noise there for that cash register that would be no sale, because that's about how little I believe that anybody would actually want to see this film. It's really beyond me, unless I have um, tweaked your morbid curiosity that you now have to see this film to judge whether or not it's as bad as I tell you.
So, in any case, I feel it's my duty to make you aware that War of the Planets is commercially available in a few different forms. Now, there were also films made in 1966 and in 2005 that also bear that title, so it's actually best to search for it under the title Cosmos War of the Planets. That's actually the more common title that you can find it under specifically for this film. It can be found for D- on DVD, on eBay, and Amazon, and sometimes part is a double feature for usually under 10 bucks. It can also be found on some of the bundled DVD packages out there. Um, there's a, a 50-movie sci-fi classics mega-pack from Mill Creek Entertainment that usually runs for about 10 bucks. Um, it was on the, the, the one that I have that has the same has a really bad print of Robot Monster on it as well. Uh, 50 movies for typically 10 bucks isn't a bad deal, so if you ever see that one, you may want to pick it up anyway. Just not for the purposes of this movie. I obtained my original copy under the title of just plain War of the Planets as part of a two-disc set called the Italian Sci-Fi Collection, produced by the Retro Media Company. But I can't locate that anywhere online now, so it must be out of print. Gee, I can't for the life of me wonder why. But honestly, folks, if it's this movie in particular that you're looking for, save your money. It's in the public domain. You can download it for free at archive.org. You can also view the film streaming in its entirety for free on YouTube. And I'll be honest with you folks, if you really want to experience this film and have access to either of its sites, view it that way. I cannot, with a clean conscience, recommend that anybody part ways with their money on a movie like this, especially in this economy, unless you're throwing a sci-fi-themed party and want some meaningless background noise, or want to watch it with some friends for the express purpose of tearing it a new one. That's about the only way that I think you could really enjoy this film. Maybe I should have had some friends with me whenever I watched it so that we could really kneel it with MST-style commentary like I did with They Saved Hitler's Brain. Uh, So I might revisit this at some point in just, you know, a brief addendum to another review to see if it was any better in that case. But in any case, unless you are really brave, don't try watching this movie alone. So in conclusion, all I can think of is really what might have been MST3K could have had an absolute field day with this picture. It would have made for an episode that would have rivaled, dare I say it, the immortal rising of Manos, the Hands of Fate. But in its raw form, War of the Planets has absolutely nothing going for it. This is an insignificant movie that just happened to be made at a very significant time in the history of sci-fi. It sank into oblivion shortly after its release, And honestly, that is exactly where it belongs. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, Hopefully next time we can uh, review a better film that will get the bad taste of this one out of our brains if you've watched it in the meantime. As always, this is Professor Stanton Gearhart signing off with the words of a film critic much wiser than myself, but uh, not always applicable to every bad film you see. Learn to go and see the worst films. They are sometimes sublime. We'll see you next time here at the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. Goodbye.